This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Hi, and welcome to Season 8 of Office Hours. Our first episode aired in 2009, and through the wonder of the Internet, new listeners are still finding those episodes and benefiting from them. When we began, podcasting was a new medium, and we had to manage the size of those episodes so that listeners who were on dial-up connections could download them. Today, most radio stations podcast their shows, and the line between broadcast and podcast is almost non-existent. Office Hours is approaching 1,000 subscribers, and we're closing in on our 200th episode. Thousands of people have downloaded episodes more than 350,000 times. Thank you for listening. Our theme this year is Reformation 500. On 31 October 1517, almost 500 years ago as we're recording today, a young Augustinian monk began to turn European Christendom on its ear by challenging the business of selling indulgences that is, forgiveness of all of one's time in purgatory, that Christians were thought to have accumulated by failing to perform their acts of penance in this life. That monk's name, of course, was Martin Luther, and in 1517 he was just getting warmed up. As he sent a copy of the 95 Theses to the bishop, he had yet to work through developments in what would become basic Protestant theology. I teach church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and this is the first of three introductory episodes of Office Hours in which we're going to set the stage for Season 8, Reformation 500. In them, we'll be considering together from where the Reformation came, what was the Reformation, and who was Martin Luther, that troubler of Israel. So first, from where did the Reformation come? There was a generation of Reformation scholarship that, when they told the story of the Reformation, began with the Renaissance, who largely ignored the medieval church. One reason for that was that, from the 19th century, some European scholars regarded medieval theology as hopelessly outdated and irrelevant to the modern world. They regarded the Reformation as a modern movement, which had to be understood on its own terms. But this approach, of course, has been heavily and rightly criticized for reasons that I'll explain in a moment. Another reason for ignoring the background of the Reformation is a view of church history that was even taught by some of the Reformed themselves, particularly in the 17th century, that the gospel was more or less lost to the medieval church and preserved only by the Waldensians and other groups. They preserved it in the way that my grandmother used to keep a few dollars in her pocketbook in case she saw something that she might need. It was always hidden away for future use. She didn't often find something on which she needed to spend that money. To this day, there are schools and courses in church history where students hear a little bit about the patristic church, that period of church history from 100 A.D. to approximately 500 A.D., and then typically they jump directly to the Reformation. In this way of telling the story, the Reformation more or less sort of falls out of the sky. In this narrative, the early church is regarded as relatively sound, the medieval church is regarded as utterly corrupt, and the Reformation church is said to be a return to the Bible, but the connections between the Reformation and the medieval church are largely ignored. This view of the history of the church, which we might call the donut approach to church history, though still widely popular in some circles, has not been taught by reputable Reformation scholars for a few decades. 
One reason this approach has been abandoned is that it is just not a very good explanation for the way that history works. Think about your own history. You have parents, you have family, you grew up somewhere. All of those things have an influence on you, even if you aren't aware of it. So it is with history. In the providence of God, we are all the products of our past, and the patristic church and the medieval church are part of our past. They help shape us, and they help make things the way they are. We can't really understand the way things are unless we understand how they got that way. So from them, from the patristic church and from the medieval church even, we learned much of our Christian vocabulary and we gained our categories of thought, even if we have sometimes had to change them. The basics of Christian theology were being worked out long before the Reformation. Origen wrote something like a systematic account of the faith in the 3rd century AD. John of Damascus gave us the basic structure of Christian doctrine in the 8th century when he divided Christian doctrine into four parts. Peter Lombard followed that pattern in the 12th century, as did Thomas Aquinas in broad terms in the 13th century. When Philip Melanchthon first summarized the Protestant understanding of Christianity in 1521, he was working in a Christian tradition that had been in existence for 1,300 years. When, in 1539, and finally through 1559, John Calvin restructured his Institutes of the Christian Religion into the four books that we know today, he was following a well-worn path. Heiko Obermann, who died in 2001, did great work to remind us all of the medieval context of the Reformation. Our own W. Robert Godfrey studied with Obermann and other influential modern Reformation scholars at Stanford University, and a number of our faculty have benefited from Professor Obermann's groundbreaking work. If we do not know something about the medieval church, we will not properly understand the Reformation. The effect of ignoring the medieval church has been obvious in North America, particularly in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, since 1974, when an ostensibly Reformed theological professor proposed that sinners are justified through faith and works. And he used that language. Further, he proposed that faith justifies because it works, and that baptism necessarily confers its benefits upon those who receive it, and those benefits must be kept by grace and cooperation with grace. Anyone with even the slightest familiarity with the basics of medieval theology would recognize each of those three points as pillars of the mainstream of the medieval doctrine of salvation and as three of the errors against which Martin Luther and the rest of the 16th century evangelicals, the Protestants, protested, sometimes even to the point of martyrdom. This is why, at Westminster Seminary, California, we spend a full quarter teaching our students about the theology, piety, and practice of the medieval church, because the seeds of the Reformation and the need for the Reformation both developed in the soil of the medieval church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So when we talk about the medieval church, we're talking about the Western church, the Latin-speaking church from about 500 A.D. until 1517. That's a thousand years, or a millennium. In that time, there were important developments in the way that Scripture was regarded, in the way that Scripture came to be related to ecclesiastical authority and to tradition, in the way that the church came to think about every area of theology, piety, and practice. 
Indeed, the very term we use to describe that epoch, medieval, was a creation of the Renaissance humanists. It was their way of pushing the medieval church to the side, of suggesting that it was inherently flawed and that it was about to be replaced by something new and better. But the Reformation theologians, as critical as they were of the mistakes made by the medieval church, did not tend to describe the medieval church that way. They saw both continuity and discontinuity between what they were saying, what they understood Scripture to be saying, and what the medieval church had been saying. One of the areas where the medieval church moved away from the consensus of the late patristic church, and that's the agreement led by Augustine of Hippo, the bishop of Hippo in North Africa, was on the doctrine of sin, where Augustine had said, and the Western church had largely agreed with him and with Paul, that human beings are born spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. The medieval church concluded that, yes, we are sinners in Adam, but we are not so sinful that we cannot freely cooperate with the grace given to us in the sacraments. Remember, there had been a theologian in the patristic period, contemporary with Augustine, who had said, no, it's not true that, as we later came to say among the Puritans, in Adam's fall sinned we all. This writer, a British monk named Pelagius, taught that, no, Adam fell and set a bad example. We are all born like Adam, and if we imitate Adam, then we too fall. But it's not necessary that we will fall or that we are born sinful. Therefore, we don't need grace, at least not in the way that most of the church thought and not in the way that Paul wrote or the way that Augustine said. So he denied the Apostle Paul's doctrine of original sin, or what we later came to call in the Reformation and after the Reformation the doctrine of total depravity. Pelagius also redefined grace. Essentially, he identified it with nature. And he redefined faith, not so much as trusting in Christ, but as obedience and good works. So against that view, Augustine, the churches of North Africa, and finally, at the Synod of Ephesus in the early 5th century, the church concluded, no, Scripture teaches that we are all born dead in sins and trespasses, grace is sovereign, and Adam and Jesus are two heads of humanity, not just examples to be imitated. The medieval church, however, lost confidence in that doctrine. They agreed with Augustine that, yes, in Adam we all sinned, but they also agreed a little bit with Pelagius inasmuch as many of them concluded that we are not completely corrupted and dead in sins and trespasses. They concluded that, yes, we are sinful, but we are not so sinful that we cannot do our part. We can do our part. We can cooperate sufficiently with grace in order to be saved. So, where Augustine had said with Paul that human beings are born spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, the medieval church largely concluded that, though, yes, we are sinners in Adam, we are not so sinful that we cannot cooperate with the grace given to us in the sacraments. 
So the medieval church concluded, naturally, as you can almost expect on the basis of what I've said so far, that if two sacraments are good, seven sacraments must be perfect. She elaborated on the two biblical sacraments instituted by our Lord Jesus, baptism and the Lord's Supper, into seven sacraments. She took practices that were popular in the churches, which were known as sacramentals, elaborations on the biblical sacraments, and gradually, over time, these popular practices became recognized and authorized by the church as sacraments. She did this not on the basis of biblical teaching, but on the basis that Jesus and the apostles had given to the church a secret, unwritten deposit. This deposit contained an unwritten tradition and the authority to create sacraments and new doctrine. So you can see that Scripture is no longer the sole, final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life by the time we get to the middle part of the Middle Ages. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888 480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Contrary to what you may have heard or read, or perhaps even thought or said, the medieval church did not formally teach salvation by works, at least not in those words. She did, however, teach a new definition of grace and the necessity of our cooperation with grace. So where scripture defines grace as God's favor merited for sinners by Christ, the medieval church came to view grace as a sort of medicinal substance. And she actually spoke of it in those categories using that language, medicine, a substance dispensed by the church in the sacraments, seven sacraments. And grace through the sacraments is infused into Christians. Think of a car. Think of a filling station. The church is like a filling station, and Christians are like cars. Grace is like gasoline, and the priest is like the old-time service station attendant who comes out and puts the gas in the car. During the week, you sort of burn up the gas, and each Sunday you go back to church to receive a new infusion of grace with which you are supposed to cooperate. 
So she set up a system of salvation whereby Christians were said to be able to cooperate freely with grace to salvation if only they will. And so that's very important to understand as a part of the background of the Reformation. Scripture is no longer the final authority for faith and life. Really, the church is now increasingly the final authority for faith and life. Grace is no longer God's free favor earned for us by Christ and received through faith alone. It is a medicinal substance dispensed by the church through the sacraments with which you must cooperate. And because, yes, you are sinful, but not so sinful, not dead in sins and trespasses, but only weak and wounded, only ill and sick, you, they said, can cooperate sufficiently in order to be finally saved. By the ninth century, when the Saxon monk Gottschalk repeated St. Augustine's doctrine of sin, grace, election, and reprobation, that is, God's eternal decree to allow sinners, fallen sinners, to remain in their fallen state, when he repeated those things that Augustine had said in the 4th and 5th centuries, he was beaten for saying it, and he was placed under house arrest until he died. In short, the medieval church became a largely semi-Pelagian church. I say semi-Pelagian because they didn't agree with Pelagius that Jesus and Adam were only examples, but they did downplay the effects and the consequences of sin. In the medieval period, the church, rather than being a hospital for sinners, became a factory handing out medicine to enable us to do our part unto salvation, if only we will. There were other big changes taking place in the medieval period as well, where at least some of the great pastors of the ancient church had preached through the scriptures carefully to their congregations. By the middle of the Middle Ages, most Christians not only could not read the scriptures, but they were not hearing the scriptures read and preached very often. At best, there were collections of verses that were keyed to the church calendar, and whatever preaching there was, was not really following the Bible through a book, as we're used to, but was following a pre-selected arrangement of certain Bible passages. Further, worship was being conducted in a language, Latin, that most people, most of the time, could not understand. In fact, even when priests conducted the Mass, the medieval Western worship service, in Latin, they themselves did not always understand what they were saying or what they were doing. And often, they themselves could not read Scripture. And in some villages, there were no copies of Scripture at all. Through the course of the Middle Ages, preachers became priests and sacraments became sacrifices. Christian worship was no longer the simple service it had been in the second century with a clear gospel sermon at its center. From the fourth century forward, worship became increasingly ornate. Pastors began to dress and conduct themselves less like pastors and more like civil authorities. In the 7th century, the first organ was introduced into public worship. 
In the 9th century, one of Gottschalk's colleagues theorized that, in Holy Communion, at the prayer of consecration, the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. By the 13th century, this became known as the doctrine of transubstantiation. And in the 13th century, but not until the 13th century, did it become the official dogmatic position of the Western Church. During the medieval church, pastors increasingly became bishops, and bishops, at least some of them, became popes, who began to claim to be the universal head of Christ's church on the earth, and who, for a time, rivaled the greatest kings on the earth for secular and military power. Through the course of the medieval church, Western Christians became increasingly convinced that only those can stand before God in the judgment who are themselves inherently, actually, personally, fully sanctified and righteous. They came to teach that we become this way, personally, actually, fully, holy, and righteous by grace— that is, the infusion of this medicinal substance, and our free cooperation with that grace. And then, ordinarily, only after thousands of years of suffering in purgatory to complete our purification and so that we would be actually, personally, intrinsically, holy and righteous. By the late medieval period, in the 14th and 15th centuries, there were two great schools of theology that more or less dominated in the West. We could add a third, perhaps, and that would be mysticism. One of these schools, which we trace to William of Ockham, who died in 1347, held that, in effect, nature is grace. That, in effect, by virtue of your creation, you have been given everything you need to be saved. As one 15th century theologian put it, to those who do what lies within them, by nature, God will not deny grace. Benjamin Franklin, in the 18th century, in the colonies, would put it this way, God helps those who help themselves. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. By the middle of the 15th century, a significant part of the Western Church was teaching the same doctrine of salvation that had been taught by Pelagius, which Augustine and the Council of Ephesus and much of the Church had rejected. At the same time, there was developing a group of new Augustinian theologians. They were horrified by what they were hearing from Occam and his followers. They agreed with Augustine about the deadly consequences of Adam's sin for all of us. They agreed that salvation is by grace and not by works. They agreed with Augustine that it is the elect who believe and who are saved, and that it is God and not we who save sinners. At the same time, there were also voices calling us back to the scriptures. They were criticizing the layers of tradition that had developed over a thousand years that had seriously obscured the teaching of scripture on things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. There were voices who began to criticize the power of the papacy in the late medieval period. and They were calling for authority to be moved back to councils and more importantly, to Scripture itself. Perhaps most importantly, there were late medieval writers who were calling into question the whole way that Scripture and ecclesiastical authority and tradition had been related through 
the medieval period. They were calling for the church to look back to Scripture and to look to Scripture to decide its theology, piety, and practice. And that is a very important point that sometimes gets overlooked when we tell the story of the history of the medieval church and the Reformation. Sometimes the impression is left that the church read the Bible in the apostolic period and it read the Bible in the patristic period, but that it stopped reading the Bible in the medieval period. And that's simply not true. The church did read the Bible. There were theologians who were studying Scripture. There were theologians who were commenting on Scripture. But they did so under the influence of a powerful set of assumptions that needed to be criticized in light of Scripture. In the providence of God, it came to be that in the late medieval period, in the 14th and 15th centuries, there arose a group of theologians who began to challenge the assumptions under which Scripture had been read for much of the previous 1,000 years. But please don't miss that truth, that reality, that fact, that the church had been reading the Bible, but it had been reading the Bible, in some ways, quite badly, and that reading had led to a number of very unhappy outcomes. So in the years just before the birth of Martin Luther, the stage was set for a great conflict between the Augustinians and the Pelagians, or the semi-Pelagians, and between the final authority of Holy Scripture and the final authority of the Church, between grace, defined as God's free favor to sinners, and grace, defined as a medicine, between faith, defined as sanctification and good works, and faith defined as trusting, resting in, and receiving Christ alone for salvation. The late medieval church was like a busy restaurant kitchen with three chefs all shouting directions where few of the waiters can read the menu and where none of the patrons has much idea of what's going on. The first chef were the semi-Pelagians, the dominant view in the Western Church, who said that, yes, we're sinful, but not so sinful that we cannot do our part. The second chef would be the Augustinians, who said, no, in Adam's fall sinned we all, we're dead in sins and trespasses, we're saved only by grace. But the new Augustinians still agreed with the semi-Pelagians that we needed to be entirely, inherently, intrinsically made holy and righteous in order for God to accept us. They were missing a fundamental biblical truth, that the basis of our standing before God is not what has been done in us, but what has been done for us and received by us, by grace alone, through faith alone. The third chef would be the mystics, who grew in significance and in influence in the late medieval period. Increasingly, they came to say that it matters not so much what we believe or what we confess or what we teach, but whether we have an immediate experience, in some cases, of the risen Christ or in more extreme cases, whether we are in the process of being absorbed into the divine being. Though most people probably didn't appreciate all of these currents moving at the same time, virtually everyone knew that there were major problems in the Western Church. An early 16th century council, years before the Reformation, confessed that the Western Church was corrupt, and this is their language, in head and members. Bishops were absent. 
priests were absent. They were holding multiple calls simultaneously. Bishops were princes, and princes were bishops. One Renaissance pope even went so far as to wear his battle armor while he was conducting mass. There were positive signs in the late medieval period. One of them was the Renaissance, which was a growing reappreciation and appropriation of the ancient world, both pagan and Christian. They appreciated the rhetorical skill of the great pagan writers, and they began reading them again in the original language. They also began reading the great early Christian writers, such as St. Augustine and many others, in the original language. And they began to recover accurate texts of both the great classical texts and the early Christian writers, as well as Holy Scripture. While these things were going on, scholars were also beginning to ask some very important questions, one of which was this. What if what we have been thinking and saying and teaching and assuming for most of the last thousand years is not accurate. And just as they began to ask that question and seek to answer it, the Renaissance was providing access to Scripture in a way that the Church had not for a very long time. Scholars and theologians began to read Scripture again in the original languages. In the early 16th century, people began to study Hebrew again in a way that hadn't been done for a long time. And they began to study and read Greek again in a way that had not been done for a long time. The great Renaissance humanist Erasmus published in 1516 an important text of scripture containing both Greek and Latin, which would give scholars such as Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and others a new way to access, study, and reflect on the teaching of Holy Scripture. And it's to that that we'll turn our attention next time on Office Hours. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.